Please join me in prayer. We sinners seek your mercy and search out your instruction in Scripture. Let our hearts be open to your teaching, and may the words we hear today lead us to participate in your victory over our sin. May we see once again our need for a Savior who is Jesus Christ and in whose name we pray. Amen. Each and every one of us is a sinner. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Despite God's grace and forgiveness, despite being washed clean by the blood of Christ, despite that Christ suffered and gave up his life to blot out our sin, we sin. God hates sin. He pours out his wrath on sin, yet we sin. We pollute our relationship with God with our sin, yet we sin. We separate ourselves from him with our sin, We are sinners at our very core. We sin not just by what we do, but by what we think. Our sin, repugnant to God, is part of our very being. Satan uses our sin. He cannot steal your salvation. God decides whom he will save. Satan has no vote. But Satan can use our sin to pollute our relationship with God and make our sanctification much slower and more painful. Satan can't take you, but he can mire you down in the muck of sin when you become addicted to a sin and cling to it, no matter how small that sin may be. And Satan is also active when you grieve over your sin But you allow that grief to overwhelm you and you wallow in despair over your sin and you do not accept God's grace. We must accept God's grace and move past our sin. Our sin stands between us and a holy God. It must be conquered. So what do we do? God did not leave that a mystery. He gives us three teachings. He says, come to him with grief over our sin and repent. Plead with him for his mercy, the only mercy that can save us. Then praise him for his victory over our sin. If we follow his teachings, he will defeat our sin and we will participate in that victory. He gives us an example. His example is bold and clear so that you will not mistake his meaning. And he repeats his instruction as he often does to be sure that we understand. 
His example is his noble son, David. King of Israel, now at the height of his power, a loyal servant of God, yet in the reading we heard earlier, David covets, and we could stop right there, but God wants you to really know this is about sin. So David takes another man's wife, schemes to hide that sin, and then causes this other man's death. Now that is sin. We probably wouldn't sin that much. But the response should be the same no matter how great or small our sin. For any sin pollutes our relationship with God. Now let's turn to Psalm 51, God's instruction to us on conquering sin. First, we'll learn that David has ignored his own sin and moved on with his life. And God, in his mercy, sends a prophet, Nathan, to remind David. So from the beginning of Psalm 51 to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And now David, newly aware of his sin, responds, Open your Bibles and follow me. In the Pew Bibles, this is on page 474 in the smaller ones, page 601 in the larger, and I think if you're downstairs, you may have to search for a different page. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud 
of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there it is, David's response to his sin. He begins with the first of three steps in our participation in conquering our sin. Let's look closely at what David says as he cries out to the Lord over his sin. Have mercy on me, O God. You can hear the anguish in David's voice as you read these words. And now repetitively, David expresses his regret and repentance. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David, with some help from the prophet Nathan, now knows his sin, and he publicly declares his sin, for this is a psalm of David written by him and will be part of the scriptures of the people of Israel. David does not try to hide his sin or his anguish over his sin. Still, as we read this, we are all merely eavesdroppers on David's prayers to God. This is David's conversation with God. God who knows what David has done, but wants to hear David say it. David acknowledges his sin and expresses his great sorrow, sorrow that will not go away, and sin does not go away until it is conquered by God. You know this. Your own transgressions weigh you down. Don't you constantly find reminders of the evils that you have done? David's sin is ever before him, And our sins are before us even now. And in verse 5, David acknowledges his sinful nature. Not only has David sinned, it is his nature to do so. And it is also our nature. Sin has a deep hold on David and on us. Behold. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David recognizes that his sin is not a momentary backslide. It is his nature to sin. It is who he is. It is who we are. Since Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, we all have had a sinful nature. And for David, it gets worse. For David, all of his life has followed the teachings of Moses 
and he's offered sacrifices for his sins. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifice is how the Israelites dealt with their sin. Burnt offerings as instructed by Moses. Yet David recognizes that this will not work for him. Where would he get such an idea? Well, there's a history of God rejecting some offerings. Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, his offering had no regard. God rejected Cain's offering, yet accepted Abel's. We don't know why. But the status of Cain's heart is cited by some as the possible reason for the rejection of his offering. And clearly David sees that his heart must be changed before God will accept his sacrifice. David's sacrifice will be rejected until there's a change in his heart. This thought that a sacrifice is not acceptable would strike terror into the heart of every Israelite that hears this. Their best effort as directed by Moses isn't going to work. If you cannot atone for your sin, how will you ever restore your relationship with God? It must be impossible. So what does David do and what do we do? Who can do the impossible? Only God. Turn to God. That's the next step. Step two. Plead with God for mercy. Remember David's anguish cry? Look at the words in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. A plea to the only one who can set this right, God. A request to him for help. Romans 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. David acknowledges God's nature so unlike our own, his steadfast love, his abundant mercy. If God does not love us, if he is not merciful, our sin will overcome us and we would be without hope. What exactly do we want God to do? Again, from David. Blot out my transgressions. From Isaiah 43, verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God, make my sins appear no longer in your sight. 
But how is this possible? God sees everything. He remembers everything. But later in Isaiah, God says he will blot out sin and he will no longer remember sin. David is confident that God will do this. Isaiah will tell us that God does this. David needs this. Trust that God will do it. But David does not know how God does this. We do. A thousand years before Christ is revealed, David recognizes his need for him. You are blessed with knowing Christ as your Savior. As Isaiah tells us, David will not, Christ will not, or God will not only blot out our sins, but will never again call them to mind. They will not be remembered. This is what David needs. This is what we need. Cry out to God that he will do this for you. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. If David could wash away his sin, he would. But this must be done by God, for sin is a stain far beyond our powers to wash away. Sin is inside us, where our soap and our scrub brush do not reach. Inside, at the level where we commune with God, our very soul. Only God can reach this deep. So rightfully, David gives the credit to God. How often is this necessary? How often does the Bible make it painfully apparent that victory can only belong to God? God reduced Gideon's army. Now Gideon still participated, but with his reduced army, there was no doubt that the victory was God's, not Gideon's. David recognizes that this is true of his sin. Only God can conquer our sin, and we must pray that he shows us that mercy. Then David recognizes that not only is God his hope for redemption, but that the real impact of David's sin is how it affects God's relationship with him. David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Of course Bathsheba and Uriah were wronged and harmed by David's sins, but the real impact was in his relationship to God. Remember, it is always and completely about God, not us. David also recognizes this, and this is a key point. Notice that nothing David is doing or asking God to do restores Uriah, but it restores God's relationship with his servant. If David's relationship with God is restored, sin is defeated. We cannot defeat sin, but by working ever closer with God, we have him as our champion and sin will not stand. It is only against God that we sin, 
Only God can forgive sin. So God is the only judge of our sin. And he is justified in condemning us. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David justifies God's condemnation. He recognizes that the appropriate punishment for his sin is condemnation, and he makes it clear here to us. David expresses how truly helpless he is without God's intervention and how just God's wrath is against David's and our sin. So God is justified in condemning us, and our sacrifices won't be accepted. Yet David is not lost. We are not lost. David recognizes that God mercifully offers the way. David has recognized, lamented, and repented of his sin, and he pleads to God for his intervention. And David also recognizes that his condemning sin lies deep within him. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It is the inward being and the secret heart, our most inward nature, that must be cleansed or we are justifiably condemned. God's delight is not just in what we do, but who we are when we follow his law. And God teaches us at the most basic level, our secret heart, the wisdom of following his law. So how is such a deep cleansing accomplished? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was ritually used to cleanse a Jew from extreme defilement, such as leprosy or contact with a corpse. David is asked to be cleansed of a great defilement. Remember, this defilement occurred when David coveted. The remainder of his sinful actions only compounded the sin. David's sins were great, but Any sin is obnoxious to God. And the cleansing required for the smallest sin must reach deep with inside us and be thorough. And we must be cleansed of sin to be in the relationship with God that He desires. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Consider snow is white on the inside, not just the outside. David wishes to be clean inside where the sin defiles him and where only God can reach. Sin dwells deep within us. It pollutes our heart. It pollutes our soul. A superficial wash will not wash sin away. We need someone who can reach inside us, grab our heart, and scrub it clean. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt 
of their sin and rebellion against me. As God says in Jeremiah, he will cleanse all of our sin. Not part of it, not some of it, all of it. And though our sin is a rebellion against him, he will forgive us. David also realizes that as long as God sees his sin, there will be no loving relationship. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. David pleads with God to not see his sin. Not just ignore, but not see his sin. How's this possible? How can David, how can we hide sin from God who sees everything? David's only hope is that God himself can somehow make this happen. He continues to plead with God for his intervention, David's only hope. David wants God to not only not see his sins, but to cleanse him of them, first by blotting out the visible, then reaching inside to the real problem, David's sinful heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, to reach inside and change his soul. Mark 7, verse 22. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be with God, David must undergo a radical change, one that only God can do. And with this change will come the blessing of God. Renew a right spirit within me to restore David's own soul to harmony with God, which only God can do. David implores God to show mercy so that he does not suffer the just consequences of his sin. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David's experience with God, just like ours, is not face-to-face, such as Moses experienced. We experience God in his spiritual form. This is the God that we and David experience in prayer. This is the Holy Spirit that is always with us and with whom David has experience. This is the wise counsel that leads us away from sin and through whom we perceive God's will. To lose that wise counsel, that perception of God is painful. And sin makes that relationship more difficult for us. David recognized the justice of God's judgment, condemnation, but now he pleads for mercy to escape the penalty justified by his sin. David recognizes the terrible price of his sin's separation from God. The fires of hell will not cause an agony that will compare with separation from God. 
Your earthly body can be burned, but that agony is bearable if God is with you, as some of our martyrs know. Jesus, on the cross, taking on our sin, understood the pain of separation caused by sin and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our sinful nature prevents God from being with us unless something stronger than we, a Savior, intercedes for us. David pleads for such a Savior, sure that God can provide such a Savior. However, unlike us, David is unaware of exactly how God will accomplish salvation, but David does know the joy of salvation, and he does know that it will come from God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David prays again for deliverance from just condemnation and properly gives the credit to God. David also anticipates the joy he will feel in this renewed relationship and the positive change that he will experience in his spirit. David has experienced that joy. No doubt you have too. Perhaps when you recognized your Savior. David also pleads that God work in him to keep his spirit in tune with God. This we will all eventually achieve. But not alone, David and we need God's help. David is fully aware of how serious his sin is, any sin, and he continues pleading to God for salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. David's sin is terrible, and David acknowledges his blood guilt. But any sin is an abomination to God, even our small sins. But David knows, and we know, that God is our hope, our only hope of salvation. And now David sees the acceptable sacrifices that are the answer to his prayers. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It is not the burned sacrifice that God wants. It is our recognition of our sin, the recognition of the just punishment for that sin, and our recognition of our helplessness without God's salvation. So David brings his once proud, now broken spirit and contrite heart and lays them on the altar of the Lord. And a merciful God accepts David's sacrifice. Imagine the joy in David's heart at this point. How can he not rise to praise God, his Savior. So that's what David does, the third, the final step. 
Give God the credit for what He has done. Praise Him for the mercy He shows us. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is now speaking of his own joy and gladness. David knows the joy of being right with his Lord. He has experienced it. He will express his joy in being David, probably in song. We each will praise God as we are able. The pain of our sin is like broken bones, but that pain turns to joy as we are reunited with God. David refers to his righteous punishment by God for his sin and will now rejoice that God cared enough to spare him of that. Isaiah 35.10 And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sign shall flee away. And David promises to spread that joy given to him. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. In his rediscovered joy, David wants to share the awesomeness of God and God's love and mercy that David has just experienced as David has now shared with us, and we will share with others. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David is compelled to use his renowned musical talent to praise God and to publicly declare the glory of God and offer praise for the miracle of our salvation. O Lord, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David wishes to share with his people the peace and joy of a right relationship with God unpolluted by sin. God, seeing their new hearts, will take delight in their offerings. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now we know, following David's example, how to confront our own sin so that God will conquer it. We know that God will conquer our sin. He has provided a Savior, Jesus Christ. God sees Christ's sinless nature instead of our sinful one because Christ intercedes for us. David needed Christ, and Christ was there for David. And Christ is there for us. David was not aware of Christ because he had not been fully revealed to him as he is to us, how blessed we are to know that God will conquer our sin, to know that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that God has not only revealed what He expects of us, but He has revealed to us the Savior that makes clear that God is quite determined to conquer our sin. 
given the majesty of God's grace to us, how can we not fall on our knees in remorse for our sin, cry out to the Lord for salvation only He can provide, and praise Him for what He has done, is doing, and will do until the day, by the grace of God and through His Son, our Lord, we are at last free of sin. It would be much easier to simply not sin against God. Yet it is our nature to sin. Someday it will not be our nature, but not yet. For now, each and every one of us is a sinner. But we have hope. In Psalm 50, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. God will conquer our sin, but he demands our participation. We must follow his teachings. We must acknowledge our sin fully and completely to God against whom we have sinned. We must recognize the just consequences of our sin, our condemnation. We must then throw ourselves on God's mercy for only he can overcome our sin. We need him. Cry out for his mercy. We will then be compelled by the awesome relief that we feel to praise and glorify God who has done this. Only he can do this. Go forward without fear. You serve a God who conquers sin for you. Praise him as we look forward to that day when God has completed his work in us and we sin no more. And know that you always have the help of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Rise up, stand as you are able, praise the Lord in song, for he conquers our sin.